let's get this out of the way. You have a really classic story about doing back work where you happen to be a girl named Alex. Yeah, that seems to be a favourite of a lot of people. They like that story. So, oh God, I don't know, what year was I in? I think I'd finished second year of my degree and it was a Christmas vacation job. And so that would have been 1987 going into 88. I got a job with Western Mining and got on the bus from Kalgoorlie to Laverton, got off in Laverton, walked in, you know, there was a big queue of students who were all getting a job at Windara. Got to the front desk where the manager was and he looked at me and he said, you're a girl. And I said, yes I am. <laughs> and he said, well you can't stay here, you've got to get back on the bus. And I, of course I was quite cross with him for saying that to me. So I said, no, I'm not getting back on the bus. I have a job. His excuse was that it was, um, there was only a single men's quarters back then. They were called SMQs. And I said, don't worry about that. I'll find somewhere to stay. I, I, I want this job. So off I went and found the local church and uh, found the priest. And I asked the priest if he could help me find a family that would put me up. And this priest put me up with um, a very long-standing local family called the Hill family. And they put me in their garden shed, in a bed in the garden shed, which is quite hot and horrible in the middle of summer. <laughs> but I had accommodation and so that meant I, I could work. So it took, it took a bit of thinking outside the box and, and not just taking no and fighting it a bit. That's uh, a really classic story and I, and I also puts it in a time frame as well. I mean, this is a time where people didn't even think that a girl or a woman would rock up for doing that type of work. That voice you heard, that was Alex Atkins. Alex's career in mining teaches us a lot about the challenges that a lot of people face, how they try to overcome them, and ultimately, our industry's problem with dealing with diversity. So come join us and let's explore. The story from the start of this episode talks about how Alex's career in mining began. She started off as a geologist after being inspired as a kid. When I was much younger, my grandfather who lived with us, my grandparents lived with us, used to be visited quite regularly by uh, a geologist. He used to come and he was wearing his geology clothes, he was covered in red dust, he had an old Range Rover covered in red dust. Clearly he'd come from God knows where. So I used to sit down and listen to their conversations and he was talking about his work as an exploration geologist. I didn't really have a grasp what he did, but it inspired me enough. So pretty early on, yeah, I think I had a tendency towards geology. Loved anything to do with volcanoes, anything to do with earthquakes, plate tectonics. So that, that sort of stuff really interested me in school. Another thing that appealed to Alex about a career in geology was the travel and how it could feed her desire to get away and explore. From a young age, I had a desire to get away, <laughs> spread my wings, be independent. And I think it's a teenage rebellion sort of thing where you feel controlled and protected and you just want to get out there and experience the world on your own terms. So as a young girl, I used to dream of uh, going to South Africa and going to South America. I even used to dream of going to Mars or another planet. <laughs> So I, was, I had great dreams of doing a lot of travel. After being so inspired and so excited to become a geologist, why did working in industry actually not really live up to its hype for Alex? 
I think my my view as a child coming out of high school was very romantic and probably impractical. So once I actually graduated and worked as a geologist, I realised that actually it wasn't for me. So I only did it for two years. I did exploration geology for one year and mining geology for one year as a postgrad. In both instances, the reality of day-to-day -day life in those roles was just not um, exciting enough for me, I guess you could say, or challenging. It, there were challenges, but I knew it wasn't quite it. What did you find really challenging when you started? Uh, so when I, my first job as a mine geologist at Wirralee Gold Mine, it was a great mine, but it was a bit routine. The job was very um, mundane, put it that way, because the job itself was really, really boring. You know, because it was all about grade control. It was about drilling and sampling and plotting it all on a surpac, surpac map and, and contouring that, and marking out blocks for the digger to dig and things like that, a bit of reconciliation work. And once you learnt it, it was very repetitive and um, didn't inspire me or excite me or anything. And I just think that's what those jobs are like. I think there's a bit of a threat going on right now. I think a lot of those sorts of jobs are likely to become taken over by some kind of automation or artificial intelligence because they are routine and repetitive. But what's good about that is it means that possibly site geologists can focus on, you know, the stuff that really excited me was all the structural mapping, taking all the measurements, putting it on the map, trying to interpret that, turn it into a model and, and you know, use that to help form a thesis on how the ore body formed so they could find more of it. That was the exciting stuff that I don't think artificial intelligence can replace. So so back in the, in the uh, what was it, 1990 when I was doing that, um, a lot of the job was very routine and mundane, but I think in the future, in our industry, if artificial intelligence does come in, it hopefully will take away a lot of that mundane, repetitive work and free up more time for the um, creative thinking, critical thinking um, and exploration of possibilities. Did a move from being a mine geologist to being an exploration geologist help Alex? I got to do exploration the next year, which was at, around Pajingo, which was completely different and much more exciting, very lonely. My main memories of working there were a lot of time in helicopters as we did heli-bleg sampling in the creeks, which was really great fun. Except that I, I have hay fever and, and the helicopter whooped up all the grass seeds, so I sneezed my head off through the whole thing. I was just a snot machine. But that was so much fun and you had to be really fit because you, know, you had to run like hell once the chopper landed, go and get your sample, which was heavy too run back, put it in the chopper, up, go to the next creek. So that was pretty, it was exciting, it was fun, and the people that were working on that program were also fit and funny and awesome. And, and another thing, I did a lot of um, mapping uh, on a cattle station, and it was on this beautiful river, the Campaspe River, and I camped under um, a lean-to that was used by the cattle guys. So this creek, uh, it had wild brumbies coming to drink, and... It was so romantic and the pastoralists used to come and visit me and I used to go back to the pastoralist homestead and talk to the family and all the sons. I think they were trying to, you know, line me up with a son. <laughs> I look back now, I should have married one of them really. And <laughs> no, it was really wonderful. And I don't really remember a lot about the mapping. I just remember the, the choppers, this camping by the creek and meeting wonderful farming people. I do recall feeling lonely though, because I'm a bit of a people person and 
I was often alone or with one fieldie and usually these people were quite introspective and not very talkative so I used to feel quite lonely. I worked really hard but I just had this empty feeling like there was still something else I needed to do. So you now finished an exploration in Pachingo. Your next career move after that was? Ewans was my first job out of university as a mining engineer, which is okay. a coal mine in central North Queensland, which was run by Manizer Mines at the time. And I did six months there and it was awful. <laughs> Absolutely awful. None of the other engineers would talk to me because they'd never worked with a woman before and they just had no idea how to talk to me. Uh, I have no idea why they were so frightened, but they were. I just think they weren't used to working with women. They'd never had a woman on the team. So I wasn't going to learn a thing there. So I luckily got offered the job at Porgera um, when I'd been at Newlands for six months and I just jumped without even really thinking about what I was doing. I just went for it because I was feeling pretty isolated at Newlands. So, yep, straight to Porgera, which was... Uh, completely different to anything I'd ever done before and anything I've ever done since. It was the most amazing experience of my life. Uh, poor girl was brilliant. Can you talk a little bit about that? In the 90s, PNG and Pogra itself would have been a pretty wild place. I mean, it still is. Did you expect it to be what it was or did you have other ideas about what it was going to be? Well, number one, I was illegal. <laughs> But I was used to being illegal because I was illegal in WA. Uh, so women became legal in 1986 in WA and Queensland underground. Just to elaborate on that point further, prior to 1986, women weren't allowed to work in underground mines in Western Australia and Queensland. So by the time Alex graduated in 1990, she was part of the first wave of women working in underground mines in Australia. But PNG was a different story at that time. Papua New Guinea still had the West Australian. They copied the West Australian legislation and they still had the old set. They had a lot of old stuff in there. They had things in there about donkeys going underground, so it was very old. When uh, the guys at Pogra hired me, they actually applied to the minister for permission for me to work there underground as an engineer. And I'm pretty sure they hired me because I had the com combination of structural geology and the mining engineering, which I guess my superintendent was pretty clever and he could see there was a lot of potential there for someone who could help with geotechnical engineering. This was in 1995, 96, so geotechnical engineers weren't a known thing back then. It was very rare to have a geotech on site. When I got there, Unfortunately, I had the same problem again as my mining engineering peers uh, that I had to work alongside did not welcome me with open arms. I think it, it might be an affront to their manhood that a woman can come along and do the job too. That's, that's something that I'm wondering if that's what that was because they see their role as very masculine and tough. Because you're managing miners, you're going to areas that are dangerous sometimes and you're operating equipment and you're in control of a large company, a large organisation, a large business unit that has you know multi-million dollar budgets. So I think there was resistance on that front because I think also, because I'm short, I'm blonde, I'm smiley, I'm friendly, I'm a bit giggly sometimes and I guess people can easily think, you know, what, what are you, you can't be the mine manager or you can't be the mining engineer. You just don't fit the mould, you don't look 
like that sort of a person. You can't be intelligent. So I'm thinking that might have had a little bit to do, and people don't know you and they don't know your background, they just jump to conclusions about you. One of the first things that was said to me when I got to Pogra by the other engineers was I got the job because I had a certain body part. And so that was really um, confronting because I knew straight away that I was going to have a bit of a battle winning them over. But I was really lucky because the people that hired me were their bosses were higher up and, and I had a lot of support from people that were superintendent and up. And I ended up making some really great friends at Pogra. Uh, some people I couldn't change and I just didn't worry about them and some people were totally won over and we've stayed friends ever since. Coming up after the break, more of our interview with Alex. Program was brilliant uh, and I loved it because of the choppers. Again, I've got a bit of a chopper fetish so we did a lot of flying in and out in big helicopters that were from the Afghanistan war. They were uh, Russian choppers the double rotors or little Vietnam War ones that the pilots used to tell me about the history of the choppers. So it was pretty wonderful, you know, flying through that incredible topography, watching the mountains come and go either side of the chopper, you know, if you've had a few wines the night before, it's pretty rough, especially if it was a good looking pilot sitting next to you, you didn't want to, you know, make a mess of his chopper. <laughs> but you know, I really enjoyed that. It was really good fun and I loved whenever we got an outing and we got to drive somewhere like a local dam or um, Hydes was nearby, we got to meet other expats that were working in New Guinea. And I, I lived in a camp that was outside of Pogra and we used to have to drive through Pogra village where they had a lot of tribal warfare going on all the time. So there was spear throwing, rock throwing, murders, rapes. The army would come in and clean the place out, burn everything, and it would be pretty crazy sometimes. Riots that would um, end up with people actually coming into the camp where we lived. Thank God that never happened when I was there, but it, I had heard of it happening previous to me being there. Yeah, so there are all sorts of amazing stories of people getting kidnapped and people hiding in the ceiling uh, when riots and uh, things were going on. So it's an exciting place to work, <laughs> very risky. But yeah, it was fun. I found out after leaving Fulgra that, um, that it was taboo in New Guinea for women to work underground because in New Guinea, women are considered lower than a pig in the hierarchy of the family. So you have the man at the top, then the pig, and then the women and the children underneath the pig. So if you run over a pig, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I would have thought with that kind of a culture that the, the nationals wouldn't have taken to me very well, but actually they took to me very well and I never had any problems with any of the nationals. They were lovely. But all in all, it was, it was an interesting experience to see a country where women are treated so poorly and yet I, I managed to do okay. I managed to do pretty well. You mentioned the fact that you learned a lot about your values working at PNG. For someone with a, such a social conscience, I think it would have been a hard place. Yeah, I think you don't know what your values are until they get stomped on. You need to be aware of what they are to guide your life so that you're happy. I don't think anybody who's young really can put into words really what their values are until they experience life and see things that make them feel sick in the stomach, make them feel nauseous and uh, nervous about the situation that they found themselves in. So it's all about listening to your gut and listening to how your body's feeling is a nice clue to finding out what your values are. 
It was a time at Pogra that allowed Alex to develop her views on sustainability and social conscience. So when I went to New Guinea, uh, there were a few things I saw. Some things were wonderful, some things were terrible. And the things that were terrible were a nice indicator of what my values were. And they were things like tailings, you know, being deposited down a river, which then ended up in the ocean. And there was, when I was working there, SBS came to Pogra to do a documentary. And it was not at all um, complimentary. And it was very embarrassing when I came home and my family were watching it on TV and I was really embarrassed. It was talking about people getting mercury poisoning in local villages and how it's impacting on the development of children. So I was pretty disappointed to see that going on and also see the women treated so poorly and to see men and women are treated differently in many cultures. Often the women are on the rough end of the stick. We had a lot of cleaning ladies. You know, they come in with bandages around their heads, broken arms, black eyes, sometimes with children in tow because there'd be no childcare available for them while they're working, sometimes even babies. There was no support for those women. And I also could see that the miners underground walked for miles every day to come to work in the dark. You know, they had to be there by 4.30 in the morning. And they lived in grass huts and they paid rent to feudal lords and they were paid a dollar an hour. So it was crap. I mean, they were on air legs. They were doing tough jobs. You know, these guys, they lived a pretty rough life. And you compare it to what the expats were getting on site, they were getting big bucks. It's completely different standards for everyone and we're all working just as hard as each other. So I found that really confronting as well. And it used to make me actually appreciate Australia more. But I, I just really, I was sad to see that the people in that country were kind of being taken for granted and used in a way, I thought. One of the things that I think people talk about quite a lot is those big growth moments in your life. That just sounds like one of those really key forks in the road that, that uh, you realise so much about yourself and realise a lot about what, what really mattered. Yeah, definitely. I think it was very formative. Honestly, it would be the climax of my career. I'm sure of it. I got so much out of it. I really enjoyed it. Alex's time at Pogra also gave her a better idea about what direction you wanted to take a career in. I really wanted to be a mine manager because I wanted to make mines safer and more sustainable. And, and I was told when I was there that I would never be a mine manager because I don't fit the mould. And that made me even more um, determined to become one and to get my ticket. So it was all about basically rebellion. <laughs> one of the things that I wanted to touch on is this theme that kind of runs through, I think, a lot of your career, maybe through your life as well which is not taking no for an answer. Is that something that you, um, would you say that that's a major part of your personality or is that something that you've grown in your career because of the career you've had? I think really a lot of my choices haven't been the result of mentoring at all. They've been completely me bouncing between brick walls and becoming increasingly stubborn, I guess, and deciding, no, you tell me I can't do that, I'm going to go and do it. Uh, in hindsight, I wish I had had somebody to um, sound off with who could put my interests first and make suggestions. What do you think is the reason why you failed to get mentors? Is it the time in the industry? You, know, you obviously said you had trouble dealing with, especially men in your team. I mean, there wouldn't have been a lot of women around at that time. Is, is that one of the reasons why you struggled with mentorship? Yeah, I was always the first girl. Wherever I went, doing that job, I was always the first female. 
I, and, and I'm not saying that I had problems with all men. I've made wonderful friends. It was just there were some men, and often those men were uh, influential, and so they were the ones that kind of prevented me from really shining. This likely means that Alex probably faced a lot more obstacles in her career than most people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I certainly noticed it more and more the older I got. So I used to train people up who were, you know, younger than me coming through. And then they'd get promoted and off they'd go to their wonderful international careers, you know, senior roles. And, and I'd stay level at the same place. And I did notice when I did catch up with my female friends who were doing what I was doing, it turned out we were all going through the same thing. So it was obviously the, the glass ceiling was very low um, and you could only go so far. So the only way you could learn and keep developing yourself was to move around. I needed to move around to keep learning and growing, seeing different mining methods, different cultures, and, and also um, just to experience and meet different people. Whereas a lot of guys would have been groomed, particularly, you know, you get the favourites, there's always favourites, and they get put on a path and they get promoted and move between sites and they stay with the same company for a long time. I found myself moving and changing companies quite regularly. And a lot of people used to pull me up on that and make out like there was something wrong with me. But really it was just me trying to grow and learn. And the only way I could do it was by taking the bull by the horns and creating opportunities for myself because they weren't going to be put in front of me. At the end of the day, maybe some people are motivated by more than what other people have decided for them. In our opinion, by moving around, Alex was trying not to be limited by the people around her and their perception of her. This is probably something a lot of women and other people in our industry probably struggle with. And even more so, does our industry have a problem with people being from different diverse backgrounds having to morph to become essentially what's normal or what's accepted? Yes, absolutely. I've looked at a lot of women over the years who do make it into senior roles in mining. And it looks to me like they have become men to get there. And that's really sad. It's really, it's sad for all the rest of us uh, who are feminine, who don't want to change who we are. And we bring with this femininity some soft skills and um, I, I would think probably strong community spirit and corporate social responsibility values that would complement uh, what's out there already. So it's sad that um, the women who inspire me are the ones who remain feminine, who remain true to themselves and true to their values and still get there. Can we talk a little bit about career off-ramps that you've taken? Is that part of the process as well? Is it because the industry didn't give you an avenue, uh, so you went outside to find it? Yeah, so my career off-ramp was forced on me, and I've talked to a lot of mining women, even women who are really senior, who have got children, and I'm talking STEM women, uh, and they had the same thing. Pretty much anyone from my generation who's had kids who did have a career on mine sites has had to resign from their job when they have babies. They are pushed out. You know, you've still got to survive. You've still got to earn money to pay your bills. And also you don't want to have a blank space on your resume. So you kind of have to reinvent yourself and leverage your skill set that you've developed and use it somewhere else. And so that's what I did. Because at the time when I had my first child, I had to resign because I was told that my role um, at the mine I worked at couldn't be done remotely, even though quite a portion of it could have been done from the coast. But the person that I spoke to w wouldn't have understood that. 
I've often found there's actually a lot of women who make it into senior roles, particularly in HR in mining, who don't have um, an understanding of your job and how it can be redesigned so that you can work flexibly and from home when you have a family and still be a reliable contributor. So they, they just write you off. Uh, I don't know if it's still like that, but it was like that for me. In one of our previous episodes, you got to learn a little bit about my co-host Steve when I asked him five questions. Now, it's my turn. Welcome to Five Questions with Ahmed. Alright, hit me Steve. What's the best country uh, you've worked in? Uh, best country I've ever worked in would probably be Tanzania. Uh, great project, great people. We had a fantastic team that we worked with and just the landscape. And the villages that we were around was just fantastic. It didn't feel like work. So from that point of view, it was probably one of the best places I've worked at. What's the worst position you've ever been put in at work? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, Having to make someone redundant, that's probably the toughest position. I'd never done it before. And frankly, I don't think I handled it very well. Good, Good answer, really good answer. So Ahmed, you're a tennis fan. Tell us about when you realized you weren't going to make it as a professional tennis player. Uh, I think there were several moments that I realized that I wasn't going to make it as a tennis player. I guess one of the major enlightening moments was that one of my good friends tried to become a professional tennis player and he had very limited success and this is someone that could absolutely wax me on the tennis court. And I think that's a moment you realize that no matter how good this guy is, he can make it. So there's very little chance that I can. Do you have any superpowers? (laughs) I don't think so. I really don't. If I have, I haven't discovered them yet. And uh, lastly, uh, who inspires you? Ah, that's a really good question. That's a pretty tough question. Um, The person that inspires me, and I know it sounds like a real cliche, but for a long, long time, it has been my father. My father has had quite a lot of challenges in his career. Um, He's someone that had quite a successful career in Pakistan and he uprooted it all, gave it up, uh, pretty much gave it all up to move us to Canada where he basically recreated his career in a different country, in a different culture. And I think that's pretty inspirational. Um, If I ever face a challenge, I always think of the fact that my father took on probably one of the toughest things anyone can do and did it well. Wow, nice answer. What would you say is your main motivation behind what you do in your career anyways? Is it social? Is it, are you driven by breaking down barriers? Are you driven by something else? I think it depends what stage of my life you're talking about. So today I'm driven by looking after my kids. Because I'm a single mum and I'm the breadwinner, I'm it. So it's all about, for me, is surviving, really. It's about constantly reinventing myself so that I can earn a living. Do you consider yourself a risk taker? I do, but it's measured risk. So I won't throw myself into a fire pit, but I will put myself in the pan on the pit. You know, I'll do that. I don't mind being uncomfortable. I don't mind putting myself in a situation where I know it's going to be challenging and I'm going to feel pretty stressed. Do you think you're motivated by fear of failure? 
Is that I, what challenges you to find a way out of situations you've been in? I don't think I have a fear no. of failure because if I did, there's no way I would have done what I've done all my life because I'm, I've set myself up for failure. Every single opportunity in my life has been breaking the rules. It's been doing, going against the grain which is setting yourself up for failure. I've taken the hard road. And when I did my underground time to get my first class ticket, I did air leg mining. I chose to become a handheld miner. I mean, what woman in her right mind would choose to do that? When you can get away with just sitting on a truck and sitting on an automated drill rig. So I, I set myself up for challenges and potential failure because I like to break the rules. I like to show people that there are other ways to go around things, that there are other options. Uh, it's not all black and white. I just like to be the rule breaker. <laughs> so how do you deal with rejection? Do you see it as an obstacle or do you see it as a speed bump? I, I get rejected all the time. I'm used to it. It's my normal. Rejection is my comfort zone. Rejection is my motivator. It's kind of like um, my way of proving people wrong. I don't care what barriers are out there, what rejections out there, it doesn't matter to me. It's, it's a little hiccup. What do you miss most about working directly in the industry? I miss it very, very, very much. I do. I miss uh, the camaraderie that you develop with your team, especially when you're going through difficult times when something bad happens and you've all got to pull together and get over it and work through it. I do miss the life. There is a romance. Uh, yeah, it is there, but it's something that you kind of really only see in hindsight. You know, when you're there, I don't think it is, but I think when you re reminisce, there is. It's hard to describe that. What qualities or opportunities allow you to probably be more successful than, say, other women in the industry? I, I don't like the word successful because it makes you sound like you're just this amazing high flyer. And I don't consider myself to be an amazing high flyer. I guess really I think what you're asking me is how do you stay in the game and engaged and hopefully still kicking some goals. I think it all comes down to a few things. One being persistence and self-belief, which takes knocks. Everybody's self-belief and confidence takes hits and you've just got to build it back up again and believe in yourself. And the only way you can do that is through your networks and your support around you. I've learned as I've gotten older how very important that is. So if you end up in a situation where you're socially isolated, which can happen when you're doing FIFO, you're prone to not being able to recover very well from setbacks. So is there any situations where you think uh, your gender has been an advantage? I think you don't get forgotten. When you're the only woman in the room, particularly if you're blonde, uh, <laughs> they don't forget you. And so that's been one of the nice things about my career, I think, is that over time I've accumulated a really big network. I don't burn bridges. People remember that and they're happy to stay in touch with you and to be a part of your network. So over time your network gets pretty big because people don't forget you and you've been a good person, so they're happy to stay in touch. And I think uh, now that there's a lot of talk about um, diversity and the need to improve diversity and potentially moving towards some form of positive discrimination in some cases, that is a plus. So what would you do to change the industry? Do you, like, how would you change it? Do you think it's a grassroots approach? Do we need things like quotas or how do you think the industry should change? 
Well, there's been a lot of research on unconscious bias and about how we've all got mind bugs, you know, which is a result of generations of social conditioning as we're raised. And it's something that actually is going to be extremely difficult to remove. And all you can do really is just to make people aware of it. And I think people need to buy into the need to do that too. So if Say if you're doing quite well from the status quo, if you're an incumbent and everything's working beautifully for you, thanks very much, why would you give a poop about unconscious bias and addressing it? So we've got to buy those people in somehow so that they can see the benefits of having diversity of thought. And there's been, thank goodness, a lot of research on the benefits of the whole brain in the room so they make better decisions, so you get higher profits, better performance, better safety. Uh, more sustainability, more engaged workforce. So there are so many benefits of diversity, but you don't get diversity, really fully functioning, inclusive diversity, unless you can address the mind bugs. Do you think you're the exception or the rule when it comes to women in mining? I, I would not want to answer that question because that would mean a gross generalisation. And we're all individuals and we're all different. I am me and I'm unique. And so are all those other women out there. They've all got their unique story. So I, I couldn't say whether I was an exception or a rule. In an industry that often has low retention rates long term, it is really unfortunate that an individual like Alex, who is motivated and passionate about the industry, has had to face so many challenges and obstacles to maintain a career in the industry. Currently, as an industry, we are starting to have dialogue about diversity and inclusion. Often, these discussions are done through the lens of gender or race. There's no denying that that's the obvious avenue to have these discussions. But in our opinion, the discussion on diversity at its heart has the concept that as an industry, we should try harder to keep as many people involved in the industry as long as possible. Sometimes, it just takes a rebel with a cause to show us that. Join us next week for another episode on Exploration Radio. Come join us and let's explore.